Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Last time I checked, witness tampering is still illegal. The lead starts right now. We're now getting a glimpse, just a glimpse, of just how much pressure former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson was under when she testified before the January 6th Select Committee earlier this week. Sources telling CNN that she claims she's been contacted by somebody from Trump world trying to influence her testimony. Plus, President Biden doing a 180 on the filibuster on the matter of abortion rights. What finally changed his mind? And what happens next time Republicans take control of the Senate? Then. Is America about to see what happens when there are too many passengers, not enough staff, not enough planes, and not not enough air traffic controllers? Add in some picket lines and you've got the recipe for a holiday weekend travel nightmare. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead and new insight into what the January 6th Select Committee believes is possible witness tampering by members of Trump's orbit. Sources telling CNN that Cassidy Hutchinson told the panel that she was contacted by someone attempting to influence her testimony before Tuesday's hearing. And now the vice chair of the committee, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, says the committee is considering making a criminal referral to the Justice Department. That's according to ABC News. Today, the committee is also now trying to compel testimony from Pat Cipollini, issuing a subpoena to Trump's former White House counsel. Testimony from Hutchinson earlier this week revealed Cipollini expressing alarm leading up to and on January 6th about possible criminal behaviors by the president and his aides. CNN's Ryan Noble starts off our coverage from Capitol Hill with more on the committee's latest efforts to get even more witness accounts about what was happening at the White House on and around January 6th. New information tonight about the January 6th committee's star witness, Cassidy Hutchinson. Sources tell CNN that Hutchinson was one of the two examples that Vice Chair Liz Cheney used to show Trump's allies were putting pressure on former staffers to stay loyal to the former president. Our committee commonly asks witnesses connected to Mr. Trump's administration or campaign whether they've been contacted by any of their former colleagues or anyone else who attempted to influence or impact their testimony. Witness intimidation among a growing list of potential crimes the committee believes Trump and his top advisors could be at the center of. It's a very serious issue, and I would imagine the Department of Justice uh, would be very interested in and would take that very seriously as well. But Trump and his allies are pushing back, attacking Hutchinson and questioning her credibility, her attorney saying she stands by her testimony. Meanwhile, the committee issuing a subpoena to former White House counsel Pat Cipollone, a key figure members believe has a lot to share. There are quite a few things that he could tell the committee that would not be subject to privilege. And I think it's important. Cipollone already signaling that he may be willing to sit for a transcribed deposition. And Thursday, the committee hearing from another key witness. Eugene Scalia, Trump's former labor secretary, who reportedly was part of cabinet conversations to invoke the 25th Amendment. And Wednesday night at the Reagan Library in California, Cheney, using the work of the committee, 
to make the case that it's time for the party to move past Trump. To the little girls and to the young women who are watching tonight, these days, for the most part, men are running the world. And it is really not going that well. And among the big questions the committee is wrestling is, is what would this testimony look like if Pat Cipollone is willing to cooperate with their investigation? As he signaled, he'd be willing to sit for a transcribed interview, but the committee would probably want a lot more than that. At the very least, be able to videotape his deposition to use clips of it in a public hearing. Of course, Jake, their strong desire would be for him to sit for live testimony and answer questions from members of the committee for the entire public to see. Jake. Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill, thanks. It is a familiar pattern by now. A loyalist to the president says some uncomfortable truths about him, and he starts smearing that loyalist. So it's not surprising that Trump is trying to do that to Cassidy Hutchinson for her testimony. He called her bad news. He claimed he hardly knew her. And then Trump told Newsmax this in an interview that aired this morning. The woman is living in fantasy land She's a social climber, if you call that social. You know, some whack job can say this stuff and get away with it. And other things, that I wanted guns at my rally. Okay, now I'm speaking. Why would I want guns? I don't want people having standing with guns in my rally. Donald Trump not under oath there. Cassidy Hutchinson was under oath. But he was denying, on the record, one of the most important parts of her testimony, the allegation that he knew People in the crowd at his speech on January 6th were armed. And he wanted to get rid of the magnetometers to let them in to the area closer to him regardless. Because, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, quote, they're not here to hurt me, he said. And also because he wanted the largest possible crowd he could get. And, of course, we know that Trump then urged his supporters to march on the Capitol, despite knowing, if you believe Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, and the committee does, that many of them had weapons. Now... Again, we should note, Cassidy Hutchinson was under oath. Donald Trump was not. And Donald Trump's comments publicly on January 6th, in in front of all of us, they really seem to back up Hutchinson's story. And I'd love to have if those tens of thousands of people would be allowed, the military, the Secret Service, and we want to thank you, and the police, law enforcement, great, you're doing a great job. But I'd love it if they could be allowed to come up here with us. Is that possible? Can you just let them come up, please? Trump's defenders are also trying to discredit Cassidy Hutchinson over the alleged incident inside the presidential SUV on January 6th. Now, remember, Hutchinson says that she was told about this incident by Tony Ornato, who at the time was the White House deputy chief of staff. Ornato told her, she said, that Trump lashed out when Secret Service agent Body Engel would not take him to the Capitol after the rally on January 6th. And, Ornato told Hutchinson, she says, Trump lunged for the steering wheel and lunged for Engel. Now, an anonymous source close to Tony Ornato is now claiming that Ornato is denying that he told Hutchinson that story. He's denying it, not under oath. He's not denying it by name, but that's what's being spread. However, no one disputes that Trump was trying to get the Secret Service to take him to the Capitol that day. Sources now telling the New York Times, quote, Mr. Engel, Mr. Ornato, and the driver of the Suburban are prepared to confirm to the committee another damning finding from Ms. Hutchinson's testimony that Mr. Trump demanded his agents bring him to the Capitol so he could join his supporters even after they emphasized the dangerous scene playing out there, unquote. Now, at least two former Trump White House officials Alyssa Farrah Griffin 
and Olivia Troy have come forward in the last day claiming that Tony Ornato, in their experience, does not have a reputation for telling the truth. And two members of the January 6th committee are now painting a picture of Tony Ornato, who has a close relationship with Trump and his team. Here's Democratic Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy earlier today. Mr. Ornato um, did not have as clear of memories uh, from uh, this period of time as I would say Ms. Hutchinson did, if that's a fair assessment there. A suggestion there from Congresswoman Murphy that there were many more I do not recalls from Tony Ornato in his testimony behind closed doors than there were from Cassidy Hutchinson out in the open. Now, Republican committee member Adam Kinzinger, he was a little bit more blunt. He tweeted, quote, there seems to be a major thread here. Tony Ornato likes to lie, unquote. The question of whether Tony Ornato is allegiant to the truth or to Donald Trump might not have been helped by Trump's interview on Newsmax when he effusively praised his former deputy White House chief of staff. These are people. These are great people. These are great people. They've devoted their lives to it. And I think they were very embarrassed by it because it yeah. makes them sound terrible. Tony Ornato and Bobby Engel. Uh, They're well great. I, I know them their very records. well. Sterling. They are records. sterling. Um, and it was very nice that they came to my defense. I thought it was incredible, actually, uh, because, you know, some whack job can say this stuff and get away with it. Tony Ornato, we should note, was not serving as Secret Service agent during this period. He'd been granted an unusual waiver to suspend his time doing the brave and dangerous work on the U.S. Secret Service to serve in a political position as Trump's deputy White House chief of staff. CNN has asked Tony Ornato and the U.S. Secret Service for comment. We've not heard back. Liz Cheney has said that Tony Ornato should come forward and testify under oath. All of this, all of this is for us to consider as we as a nation move forward and try to learn the truth about all the ways that Donald Trump and his team tried to usurp democracy, which is really, after all, what this is all truly about. Joining us now to discuss former Attorney General under President George W. Bush, Alberto Gonzalez. He also served as White House Counsel for the 43rd president. Uh, thank you so much, General Gonzalez, for joining us. We heard Liz Cheney say in that speech to the, to the Reagan Library, quote, Republicans cannot both be loyal to Donald Trump and loyal to the Constitution. Do you agree? Do you see it that way? I think that that is a very accurate statement, quite frankly. Um, there are some serious issues here, uh, and I'd like to give the benefit of the doubt to President Trump, given the, the fact that uh, this really is one side of the story, although to call Ms. Hutchinson a whack job, uh, I mean, he has the op- President Trump and his allies have the opportunity to come before the committee and present their side of the story. I suppose they want to wait, and, and I think that they will have an opportunity because I, I fully anticipate that um, the department is going to move forward, certainly with an investiga- a, a, a more serious investigation now with this, with this new information, and they're, in fact, Maybe some indictments. We'll have to wait and see. You know, we've never had a former president subject to a public trial. And so to the extent if if Attorney General Garland decides to move forward uh, and indict and try to prosecute President Trump, he has to be successful. And so it's not surprising that um, they're taking their time in the Department of Justice. Some of us been criticism about the pace of the investigation, but he will have to be sure that he will be successful in prosecuting a former president because it's never been done before. And so, uh, you know, there's a we're in a quite a situation, quite frankly. And and I've got um, like many Americans just so disappointed and dismayed about some of the testimony 
in terms of what happened on January 6th and um, what some of the president's aides and allies did or didn't do yeah. uh, in order to protect them. Have you seen evidence or at least uh, possible evidence that leads you to wonder whether Donald Trump committed a crime? And if so, which crime? Yeah, I think that uh, if you can time, I mean, he knew about, he knew the crowd was dangerous. He encouraged the crowd to go to the Capitol. Uh, and uh, he knew the crowd was armed. And he knew the purpose of the, uh, what, what was going on in Congress, which is to certify the electoral uh, college count. And uh, yeah, I, I think one might make the argument that there's uh, uh, certainly the, the beginnings of a case for seditious conspiracy obstruction of, of Congress. So there are some things here that I think certainly Mary Garland is going to look at in addition to witness tampering. That's something that's also a crime. So there's a, there is a lot there, uh, Jake, but you know, we, we have a system here. So there, there will not be any successful prosecution uh, unless there's no reasonable doubt. And so the question is, how much of this information are the prosecutors going to be able to get into a court in front of a jury? And of course, all these witnesses that we're hearing from now are going to be subject to cross-examination. And, uh, you know, so uh, things may turn out differently. I, I don't know, but I will say I have to believe that folks in the Trump, Trump world are very concerned and very nervous right now. And, and I think I'm not surprised that Pat Cipollone has been, has been subpoenaed. I think um, his testimony is critical. Again, for, for no other reason than if you're going to go after the president, you've got to get, lock up as much evidence as you can. To ensure, uh, to ensure yourself that, yes, we're going to be successful in prosecuting the president of the United States. Something that I, that I heard um, when Liz Cheney, when Congresswoman Cheney put those intimidating uh, texts up at the end of the hearing Tuesday, one of the things that said in there was that Donald Trump is reading all the transcripts. And it occurred to me that uh, earlier this year, a legal defense fund was put together by some very strong Trump allies in which uh, Trump aides were being offered representation, paid for by this fund. If these lawyers are representing potential witnesses, but actually serving Trump, not the witnesses, and actually providing these transcripts to Donald Trump, is that appropriate? Is that even legal? Well, I mean, the, the first fiduciary obligation that a lawyer has is to, is to the client. Uh, uh, it's possible that these witnesses may have given permission to share that information. I don't know, but uh, from my perspective, there, there, it's, there's a, it's problematic if you've got the lawyer uh, for a, a client sharing confidential information with someone, uh, someone else without the client's permission. No, there's no question about that. Neil Eggleston, uh, Eggleston, Eggleston rather, was uh, the former White House counsel in the Obama administration. He told CNN this about a possible criminal prosecution of Trump. Quote, how would a prosecution of President Trump impact the future presidency? I think those are the issues they'll be thinking about. I think they will conclude they'll have no impact on the future presidency. Um, do you agree? Well, it's hard to imagine this scenario repeating itself. I mean, this is an extraordinary set of circumstances. <laughs> and obviously, you, you want to be very, very careful about prosecuting uh, a former president. I, you know, I think the Constitution is set up in a way that you... You really can't prosecute a sitting president. What typically would happen is you have you would have the uh, that that president impeached, and then once they're a private citizen, then they would be subject to prosecution. But uh, it's hard to imagine, and I I don't even want to imagine 
this kind of scenario scenario repeating itself. I can't imagine a more serious um, set of circumstances, which in my judgment really uh, sort of negates any kind of claim of executive privilege. Uh, it's a qualified privilege. What the courts have to do is weigh the need for the information against the need to keep it confidential. And in this particular case, uh, I, I, I can't, it's hard to imagine a set of circumstances uh, where that inf the information that, that people like uh, Cipollone has uh, shouldn't be shouldn't be available uh, to the court. So, you know, a lot of, we'll have to wait and see what happens. It's a, again, um, I think for many Americans, other of us who work in the White House and justice, very very disappointing about what we're hearing from these yeah. hearings. Former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Is President Biden claiming he would get rid of the filibuster to make Roe v. Wade law just for the political points? Two former members of Congress will weigh in next. Then pilots for one airline are picketing ahead of what experts warn could be a holiday weekend travel mess. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, President Biden made his strongest stance yet, perhaps, on the issue of abortion rights. Take a listen. I believe we have to codify Roe v. Wade in the law, and the way to do that is to make sure the Congress votes to do that. And if the filibuster gets in the way, it's like voting rights, it should be, we provide an exception for this. Chances of that happening in the Senate are slim to none, as key moderate Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema signaled they are not going to budge on changing filibuster rules. Uh, let's discuss with former Congressman Joe Kennedy and former Congresswoman Mia Love. Uh, Congressman Kennedy, uh, the Biden administration is banking up on picking up two more Senate seats to get this done, which seems something of a tall order, I have to be honest. Um, midterm prospects for Democrats are, are looking dismal. Um, is it fair to say that Democrats should be bracing for a letdown this November? Uh, Jake, I think obviously the, the, economic, or the political headwinds here have been clear for a while and they've been hard, and history tells us that. That being said, as everybody knows, you... you it, <laughs> History is replete with surprises when it comes to Election Day. I think uh, the comments that you just heard, I think, are, are recognition that there are structural aspects to our democracy that are under threat. And I believe that the Supreme Court has um, delegitimized and those structures need to be renovated in order to make sure that our public feels that uh, their voices are being uh, represented in those institutions. And so, yeah, he's got the right idea. I'd abolish all of it. Former uh, Congresswoman Love, uh, President Biden spoke at the NATO summit today. Take a listen. The one thing that has been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States on overruling not only Roe v. Wade, but essentially challenging the right to privacy. Republican uh, Senate leader Mitch McConnell responded in a statement saying, quote, attacking a core American institution like the Supreme Court from the world stage is below the dignity of the president unquote. Uh, what do you make of it all? I actually agree with Senator McConnell on this. I, 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 anytime a president is out talking about the United States, I hated it when Donald Trump did it. And I don't like it now. And it's a pipe dream. I do think it's a pipe dream. The president can't even get 50 senators, let alone 60, to change the filibuster. The filibuster can't be used or not just because you don't get your desired outcome. The filibuster is a feature of the Constitution. It's not a flaw of the Constitution. I, I think anytime he's out there, he really should 
discuss the United States in a positive light, not blaming a major branch of our government. Congressman Kennedy, something about the filibuster changing the rules as you want to do and as uh, President Biden said he should be done for voting rights and uh, abortion rights. It's entirely likely that Republicans will take the Senate back uh, this November, and if not this November, in two years or four years. I mean, it flips back and forth. There's no... Once you get rid of the filibuster, you get rid of the filibuster. Just because Democrats say, well, we're only going to do it for voting rights. We're only going to do it for abortion rights. That's not going to mean anything to a Republican majority. 100%, Jake. I agree with you wholeheartedly, which is why I actually would get rid of it completely. Because as we saw with Mitch McConnell and, this, and justices or judges, when Democrats lowered that threshold for, for uh, federal judges, he then abolished it for uh, Supreme Court justices. So once you adjust this, you adjust it. But the point here is you cannot continue to have Republicans continue to alter the core of these institutions. And I'm sorry, this is where Congresswoman Love and I fundamentally disagree. Mitch McConnell, when he was Senate Majority Leader, refused to confirm a judge that was put forward by President Obama, essentially stacking the court. That's what Republicans have already done. And now all of a sudden, when Democrats say, hey, you did it, we're going to do that in equal measure, they claim that somehow Democrats are undermining the faith of the institutions and undermining international faith in the United States. Hogwash. Look at what President Trump has done over the last several years, did over those past several years, and I think me and I actually agree on that. But the continual undermining of those, that framework to tilt in conservative, uh, in conservative favor and now having activist judges that are just running roughshod over precedent, and even Clarence Thomas saying, we'll go as far as we want to go. Precedent be damned. Man, that's a, a government official taking aim right at those very same institutions that conservatives claim to love. Congresswoman Love, I know you uh, oppose abortion. Let me just ask you, though, um, are you concerned at all that some of the state's laws are so broad, uh, not allowing abortion in any case except for um, life of the mother? Um, so not when there's a risk to the health, not in cases of rape or incest, not in the first week of pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera. Are you worried that any of that goes too far? And if not, are you worried about the political ramifications that this might actually help Democrats come November? I am less worried about the politics of it. I'm more worried about the actual, what actually ends up happening to mothers who end up with an unwanted pregnancy. The two bookends are abortion at any time, at any place, without any thought. The other bookend is no abortion at all at any time and americans aren't there because these because everything is so individualized these are so incredibly personal they're in the middle and so i am concerned about the bookends absolutely i have always fought for the right to life for the unborn but i've also fought for the mother i think we can be an advocate for both and i think one of the best things that congress can do is stop fighting this battle at the end of the story and start giving more women more options when it comes to their reproductive health. I have fought for that for a while with the over-the-counter contraceptive bill that I, that I introduced in the House, but we need to give more women more options. So, we're not, so they're not having to make the choice between keeping a life and ending a life. Congressman Kennedy, um, Kentucky's uh, Louisville Courier-Journal newspaper reports that Biden apparently cut a deal with Mitch McConnell Uh, to uh, appoint um, an anti-abortion rights judge in Kentucky in exchange for McConnell agreeing to let Biden's future federal judicial nominations uh, through the Senate. 
Um, there isn't a judicial position open on the Kentucky court right now, um, but what do you make of this? Look, I don't know the details of it, Dick. I saw the reporting there. I think uh, both sides obviously understand the importance at the moment of uh, federal judges and uh, the extent to which Republicans are going to try to continue to impede that process to get uh, selections by uh, President Biden onto the court. Uh, obviously, that's deeply concerning. I, I would come back to say I would hope that a Democratic majority here would, would be able to, to get those people placed. But again, we saw the, the challenges just, I think, news breaking this afternoon of uh, Senator Leahy with a uh, falling and needing hip surgery. So he'll be out of the, the, the chamber now for, for probably some period of time. You know, this is what happens when you've got very tight margins. You, 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 you work with imperfect results. So um, hopefully we'll get as many of those judges confirmed as quickly as possible. Former members of Congress, Mia Love and Joe Kennedy, thanks if I don't see you or talk to you. Happy Fourth of July. Happy Fourth. The first black woman has been sworn in as a U.S. Supreme Court justice. And what a court it is right now. Just wrapping up one of the most controversial terms in modern history. Stay with us. Today, the Supreme Court handed down its final opinions in what has been, I think it's fair to say, a monumental term. The court dealt a major blow to President Biden's climate strategy today, limiting the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to regulate carbon emission to address climate change. The court also rejected a major challenge to the Biden administration's effort to end the Trump era remain in Mexico policy that forced many asylum seekers to return to Mexico while their immigration proceedings played out more. History was made on the high court today as well. Justice Stephen Breyer officially retired, allowing now Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson to be sworn in as the very first black woman ever to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. CNN legal analyst and Supreme Court biographer Joan Biskupic is here to break down all of this for us. Joan, I mean, an incredibly significant term, uh, lots of major decisions. Tell me about the, the um, EPA ruling. The White House is calling this ruling, unquote, n- another devastating decision from the court that aims to take our country backwards. Explain the importance of this. Major ramifications on two fronts. First of all, just the EPA front. You know, these are emissions from power plants that administrations for decades have been trying to control in one way or another. And we're in this climate change crisis. And so the, on just that part, the court has stripped the EPA of some power here to do that. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts said, if, if the court, if uh, EPA is going to do something this significant. It has to have clear authority from c- Congress. It cannot overly read its statute. Elena Kagan in dissent said these agencies are supposed to take, take care of these kinds of things because they have the expertise. They have the expertise here. And she said, I can't think of many things more frightening than the court taking control here. But broader, Jake, the court has diminished the power of regulators across the board for environment, public safety, saying, you know, no longer, as past courts did, offer more deference to agency authority, saying it's in the hands of Congress. The dissenters say Congress isn't going to do anything. This is going to leave so many, so much swaths of uh, public safety, health open for no regulation, essentially. Hmm. Um, And uh, alarm bells going off for a lot of people. For the next term, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear a a redistricting case that legal experts say could have major implication when it comes to, to voting rights. Explain. That's right. A North Carolina redistricting case that puts on the table that theory called the independent state legislature theory that Donald Trump and his people were really pushing during the 2020 election to try to get state legislatures to throw out electoral counts, the will of the people, and have their own. And that's what's front and center in that case. 
Four justices have already expressed support for state legislatures having more authority and not being um, overseen by state courts to see if individual rights are in, in, voting rights are in any way impinged. Oh, what could go wrong? Joan Biskupa, <laughs> thanks so much. Appreciate Thank it. You. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh joined the court's three liberals basically to side with President Biden on his plan to end a Trump-era border policy known as Remain in Mexico. Biden will now be allowed to end the policy, which allowed Trump to send migrants back to Mexico while their immigration proceedings played out. Instead, the Biden administration is now going to be allowed to either detain them or release them in the United States. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is at the U.S.-Mexico border with a look at how this decision could impact asylum seekers. A major victory for the Biden administration. The Supreme Court ruling that President Biden can end the controversial Trump-era Remain in Mexico policy. It's a relief. It's a program that should have never been started. The unprecedented program forced non-Mexican asylum seekers to return to Mexico and wait there until their immigration proceedings in the United States. It's just one piece of a complicated set of border policies that have contributed to confusion and desperation among migrants. Jennifer Scarborough, an immigration attorney in Texas, has been working with migrants for 12 years. When people feel like they have no other option, when everything's been so confusing and so difficult, they just end up taking riskier and riskier and riskier routes to try and get here. Those dangers came into sharp focus this week when at least 53 people died after being transported in a semi-truck in the sweltering Texas heat in what is being called the deadliest human smuggling incident in U.S. history. There are people who left wanting to achieve the American dream and wanting to be better people, says José Luis Castellanos, who lives in Honduras. The Justice Department says four people have been charged in connection to the incident. But human smuggling remains a top concern for officials this summer, with temperatures in the triple digits and as border crossings continue to rise. In May, U.S. Customs and Border Protection stopped more than 239,000 migrants at the U.S. southern border, according to the latest available data. That's up nearly 60,000 from last May. There is deep disagreement over how to handle the influx. Even some Democrats were not unanimous in agreement with the Supreme Court ruling on Remain in Mexico. Texas Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez represents the 15th district, part of which borders Mexico. He says the administration needs to implement policies that work to address migration further south. It concerns me greatly, especially at this moment in time, because we don't have a policy in place that will prevent uh, mass migration to our southern border. But immigration attorneys and advocates say remain in Mexico is not the, the answer. The things that we saw that were happening to people and the way that they were having to live is incredibly disturbing to see. Um, it's, it's just not how we treat, how we should treat human beings. Jake, it's not immediately clear how quickly the Supreme Court's decision will take effect because there are still additional legal steps that have to be taken, but a win for the Biden administration as it tries to set its immigration agenda. Jake? All right, Priscilla Alvarez at the U.S.-Mexico border in Hidalgo, Texas. Thanks so much. Why Americans' credit card habits could be a new warning about a coming recession. Stay with us. In our money lead, inflation will not go away. A government measure called the Personal Consumption Index shows inflation remaining stubbornly high. Uh, Prices are a little over 6% higher compared to what they were in May of last year. The news pushed stocks lower 
but Wall Street thankfully avoided a major sell-off. Let's bring in CNN's Rahel Solomon. First of all, Rahel, explain what this latest number covers. So, Jake, every month we get several inflation reports. This one is considered the Fed's preferred inflation report. It's broad, but it's considered less volatile than some of the others. Uh, What we learned today is that energy prices... No surprise to anyone who owns a car these days. Higher by about 36 percent than a year ago. Food prices about 11 percent. And even when you strip away, Jake, some of those more volatile categories like food and energy, core inflation still high. And to put this in perspective, that 6.3 percent top line number, Jake, the Fed would like that to be at 2 percent. So we are very far from the Fed's goal. So it looks like we are in for uh, quite a few years of the Fed tightening as it tries to get inflation under control. There are also um, troubling numbers about the use of credit cards to get by. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the latest data we got from the Fed suggests that revolving credit, essentially credit card balances, spiked by about 20% in April. 20%, that's enough to raise some eyebrows and also start to question, are we seeing some cracks in the consumer? What I should say, Jake, is what we don't know is whether consumers are using credit cards to pay for essentials or if they're using credit cards to just shop. Very important distinction. What I can say is that Bank of America, to provide some context earlier this month, put out a report, essentially a a consumer checkpoint, the state of the consumer. And what the bank found is that by and large, most Americans still have more in their checking and their savings account than before the pandemic. So that, of course, is a good sign because even in the midst of these recession warnings, the the strong consumer has been the backbone of this economy. And so any cracks there certainly is going to get a lot of attention. But it's just unclear right now if this is uh, just a one off or a sign of a more troubled trend. And Rahel, there's this other report showing that mortgage rates have nearly doubled compared to last year, although we should note they're, they're down slightly now compared to last week. Tell us about that. Yeah, so mortgage rates are very sensitive to the Fed's benchmark interest rate. And mortgage rates have really spiked this year, although, uh, as you pointed out, we saw a slight decline in the last week. This is already, though, mortgage rates already causing uh, quite a bit of pain across the industry. We have seen layoffs uh, as mortgage demand has really fallen off because Home affordability is such a big challenge right now. Prices are still, on average, between 15 to 20 percent higher than they were a year ago. And mortgage rates, by some estimates, are about twice what they were at the start of this year, the very least two percentage points higher than they were at the beginning of this year. So affordability is a real challenge. Jake, important to note, this is all part of the Fed's plan. It wants to curb consumer spending. It wants to concern, uh, curb demand. But that doesn't make you feel good if you're at home and you're in the market for a house right now. And take all of it together. It's no surprise. A new poll shows 85 percent of the American people think the country is headed in the wrong direction. Exactly. We see it in the polling with consumers. But, Jake, what's interesting is that Main Street, the real economy and Wall Street don't always say the, the same things. What we're seeing these days is we all have the same concerns. We're concerned about a recession. You see it in the markets, as we saw as the markets closed today and really this year, and you see it in the polling with American consumers. Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Pilots for one airline are picketing ahead of what airlines warn. It could be a holiday weekend mess. What do you need to know before you fly? We'll tell you next. Concerns about more travel trouble is prompting the FAA to reach out to airlines ahead of the 4th of July. AAA predicts more than 3.5 million people will take to the skies over the holiday weekend. This is Delta pilots at several U.S. airports are picketing today over staffing issues. Let's bring in CNN's Pete Montin. Pete, are airlines ready to handle the crowds this holiday weekend? Well, the short answer here, Jake, is that we will have 
to see. You know, there's bad weather forecasted for some of the major airline hubs over the weekend. We know that when bad weather strikes, combined with the fact that airlines got a lot smaller over the pandemic, that is when the deck of cards really comes tumbling down and these delays and cancellations really begin to pile up. Look at the numbers from last week. 2,200 cancellations over last weekend nationwide. 3,200 over the weekend before, the Juneteenth Father's Day weekend. You know, Delta Airlines has really been taking it on the chin when it comes to cancellations, and it just issued a statement saying that it will institute a travel waiver system-wide for all of its passengers starting tomorrow, July 1st, and through the 4th. I want to read this statement because Delta says it's working around the clock to rebuild Delta's operation while making it as resilient as possible to minimize the ripple effect of disruptions. Even so, some operational challenges are expected this holiday weekend. So, This is a win for passengers in a way because they don't have to pay change fees or higher fares, but it is an admission from the airline that there are going to be problems this weekend. There's um, been a lot of finger pointing between airlines and the FAA over how to manage the summer demand. Are any steps being taken to to help alleviate the situation? There is a lot of pressure from the Department of Transportation and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg on the airlines to essentially get their acts together. Now, he has said that the airlines really have not been good actors, especially since the Memorial Day weekend when cancellations really started to pile up. The pressure is on because they know that they have to get this together. They know that the DOT is watching. And airlines really put some of the pressure back on the federal government by saying that the FAA has not helped them out by staffing up when it comes to air traffic controllers to alleviate some of these delays and cancellations, especially in key places like Florida. We've seen delays and cancellations in the Jacksonville Air Traffic Control Center over the last few days because of staffing. The FAA insists it is moving people around. It is trying to alleviate those problems on its end. What the airlines are doing, they're proactively canceling flights. In fact, really no airline is safe from this. United Airlines is one of the latest to make one of these proactive cancellation announcements. It's canceling about 50 flights a day starting tomorrow at its major Newark hub through the rest of the month. That's about 12% of all domestic departures, although the United says it's really not because of airline staffing. It's more because of congestion that already exists at the airport. It does seem like it's worse than ever before. Pete Montine, thanks so much. Appreciate it. It's the same island where Ukrainian soldiers told a Russian warship to go F itself. What just happened on that island could prove pivotal for Ukraine. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a notorious lynching dating back to 1955. A newly discovered outstanding warrant for a suspect who's still alive. Could Emmett Till's family finally get justice? Plus, alarming questions about what the abortion ruling might mean for women's privacy. What are doctors' offices sharing with the government? And isn't HIPAA supposed to protect patients' private information? Leading this hour, the Supreme Court abortion ruling prompting President Biden to reverse his longtime stance in favor of upholding the filibuster. Nearly a week after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the president now says he supports getting rid of the Senate rule or the 60-vote threshold needing to get bills passed for that issue. The president made the statement during a press conference at the end of the NATO summit in Spain. CNN's Caitlin Collins reports President Biden wrapped up this critical trip to Europe with a blistering attack on the Supreme Court back home. I can understand why the American people are frustrated because of what the Supreme Court did. On the world stage in Madrid, President Biden backing an exception to Senate rules for abortion rights today. I believe we have to codify Roe v. Wade in the law, and the way to do that is to make sure the Congress votes to do that. 
The president condemning the Supreme Court for overturning Roe versus Wade, saying it has shaken the nation. The one thing that has been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States. Biden criticizing one institution while calling on another to step in. If the filibuster gets in the way, it's like voting rights. It should be. We provide an exception for this. But two senators who have stood in Biden's way before remain unmoved, with both Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kirsten Sinema still against an exception to the 60-vote threshold that Biden suggested. Getting rid of the filibuster does not make it work better. Under pressure from his own party to do more, Biden declined to lay out concrete next steps on securing abortion rights. I'm having a meeting with a group of governors when I get home on Friday, and I'll have announcements to make then. The president was pressed on the politics at home after wrapping up meetings with world leaders on Ukraine. Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. Western leaders rallying around Ukraine as Russia's invasion drags on, but declining to predict when the war will end, only saying their support won't. We are going to support Ukraine as long as it takes. An added complication to that support, rising energy prices around the globe. But inflation is higher in almost every other country. Prices of the pump are higher in almost every other country. We're better positioned to deal with this than anyone, but we have a way to go. Despite soaring gas prices, Biden asserted that the economic pain won't deter the United States from supporting Ukraine. I don't know what, how it's going to end, but it will not end with a Russian defeat of Ukraine in Ukraine. And Jake, on that front, President Biden did say the United States is preparing to send another $800 million in security assistance, that's military weapons, to Ukraine as this battle goes on, saying that that will include offensive weapons. That comes as President Zelensky says that his country needs more weapons faster than the pace that they are currently getting them as he is aiming to bring this war to an end by the end of the year, Jake. Caitlin Collins reporting for us live from Madrid. Thank you so much. Turning to Ukraine now, new satellite pictures of Snake Island, the symbol of Ukrainian resistance, have surfaced, showing the island pummeled by drone strikes with no Russian occupiers in sight. Ukraine says they've completely run Russia off the critical Black Sea outcrop, while Russia claims the troop withdrawal was a, quote, gesture of goodwill. CNN's Scott McLean reports for us now from Ukraine, where news of the small island's recapture is making waves. In the battle for Ukraine's eastern Donbass region, the Ukrainians are losing ground slowly. The Russians continue to bombard the city of Lysychansk, making escape for those who remain extremely difficult, or even impossible. Farther west, the search for bodies at a bombed-out shopping mall in Kremenchuk seems equally hopeless, as people lay flowers for those found dead and those who may never be found at all. But Ukraine can claim one victory on Snake Island, the rocky outcrop in the Black Sea near Odessa, now back in Ukrainian control thanks to an overnight artillery assault that forced the Russian occupiers to flee. The Russians truly understood that they had to do the right thing, gathered their things, and got out as soon as they could. The Ukrainian military released this video showing recent strikes in its weeks-long campaign to take back the island. New satellite images show the scars of war left behind, but no Russians. Russia claims it withdrew from the outpost as a goodwill gesture to Ukraine. 
This solution will prevent Kiev from speculating on an impending food crisis, citing the inability to export grain due to Russia's total control of the northwestern part of the Black Sea. In response, the Ukrainian foreign minister tweeted that the Russians always downplay their defeats this way. Partners should not be wary of providing Ukraine with more heavy weapons so that we liberate more of our lands. Snake Island has played an outsized role in the war. From the very first day when a Russian warship ordered Ukrainian troops stationed there to surrender and got this response. Since then, that defiant response has been immortalized in a postage stamp, reprinted on every kind of souvenir, and is still a source of national pride. We will never give up, you know, like never, ever. Like, you know, like, like the people from like Snake Island, they knew this is like a fight they cannot win, right? But they were still like, you. It would be great if the next Russian goodwill gesture would be Putin shooting himself in his bunker. Now, Snake Island is important not just symbolically, Jake, but also militarily and economically, because as the Ukrainians will tell you, whoever controls that island really controls the flow of civilian ship traffic along that stretch of southern Ukrainian coast. Now, the Ukrainians say that although it appears the Russians have vacated the island, they want to make sure that they haven't left behind any booby traps or mines before they go back to reestablish their own military base on the island, Jake. All right, Scott McLean, thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss is retired General and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Wesley Clark. General, I'd like to start with your reaction to the Russians apparently abandoning Snake Island. Do you think this indicates that Putin is scaling back his ambitions for Ukraine? No, I think they were driven off and uh, by the artillery. They didn't have the uh, equipment to dig in properly to withstand an artillery assault, and they pulled out. Uh, but uh, the Ukrainians have got to occupy it. They've got to hold it. Maybe they need to put a couple of those harpoon missile launchers on the island and use it to protect the sea lanes. Jake, it is going to be important because that grain in Ukraine has to come out. And if the Russians don't agree to let the grain come out, then holding Snake Island is going to be a big factor in getting the grain out anyway. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg tells CNN that President Putin, in his view, made a, quote, big and huge mistake underestimating Ukraine's resistance and the unity of the NATO alliance. Do you think there's any part of Putin that sees it that way? I think Putin still believes he's winning. He believes, and he's getting reports, obviously, from his uh, intelligence sources, that there isn't that strong a unity, and he always will hear voices like this in NATO. These are democratic nations, including our own, and there's always a diversity of opinion. And he's uh, probably being fed that because he wants to hear it. But he also understands that the Ukrainian logistics system is not like the Russian system. So the Ukrainians can't produce the military equipment they need. They've got to rely on outside assistance. And he has a preponderance of military power. So um, he believes that it's just a matter of wearing them down. Look, Jake, from the Russian perspective, what they're actually doing in Donbass is holding the Ukrainians in position with some of the best Ukrainian forces in a more or less linear defense along this horseshoe and then pounding them with artillery. So they may think that's a winning strategy. We don't see it that way. We're hearing it from the Ukrainian side that they're holding their ground and holding on to the land. So time will tell, you know, which assessment is the most accurate and which strategy worked the best. Take a listen to something President Biden said earlier today. 
Putin thought he could break the transatlantic alliance. He tried to weaken us. He expected our resolve to fracture. But he's getting exactly what he did not want. He wanted the Findalization of NATO. He got the NATOization of Finland. Is NATO as strong as President Biden is suggesting it is? Well, I think, Jake, the way you have to look at NATO is it's strong enough. And the more pressure it's put under, the stronger it will become. NATO runs on and thrives on American leadership. And these democratic allies of ours, they all have their domestic politics. <clears throat> In every country, there's somebody who says, no, it's not worth it. And, uh, and there's somebody else who says, yeah, we wouldn't be doing it. But those mean Americans, they're making us do this. And um, that's the way NATO's operated for 70 years. And it's, it's the formula for success. The more pressure NATO's put under, the stronger NATO resolve will become. Because this won't be a fight about Ukraine. It will be a fight about NATO. And these no nations understand that NATO has to persevere and survive. President Putin said overnight that he's not bothered by Finland and Sweden joining NATO, but that Russia will, quote, respond symmetrically to threats. Is that just saber rattling? What do you think? Well, I think it's uh, Putin trying to shrug off a bad outcome, honestly. Look, by having Sweden and Finland in there over time, the ability to defend the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, is much stronger. It gives us the control 360, almost 360 degrees around the Baltic Sea. And it gives us the seabed that belongs to NATO. And there's lots that can happen in that Baltic Sea if you're on all sides of it. So rather than having three small nations that could be quickly overwhelmed, you have the potential for defense in depth. Um, this is not something that Putin wants to have happen. He's just shrugging it off because that's the way the Russians play the information warfare game. He's certainly not going to admit defeat. And Jake, what NATO has to say to Putin is, you will not win. You will not win. Every NATO leader needs to say it publicly and convince him. Once he's convinced he won't win, this will end. Retired General and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Wesley Clark, thanks so much. Appreciate it. What the new abortion ruling might mean for your privacy and what private information doctors are allowed to share with law enforcement. Stay with us on that. Then a death penalty case that has both Republicans and Democrats claiming the sentence simply needs to be overturned. Stay with us. In our health lead, a judge ruled today that Florida's new law banning abortions at 15 weeks violates the state constitution, and the judge is issuing a temporary injunction. The law had been scheduled to go into effect tomorrow after it was signed by Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis back in April. DeSantis's office says the governor is confident the law will ultimately withstand legal challenges. The decision comes less than a week after the monumental Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. Now the Department of Health and Human Services is releasing new guidance on how protected health information can be shared amid the legal shakeup. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins us now live. Elizabeth, what does this guidance say from HHS about when healthcare providers are allowed to share private information? 
Right. So, Jake, we're all familiar with HIPAA. That's the privacy law that tells doctors, you know, what information, uh, patient information they can't reveal. So today, the Department of Health and Human Services weighing in on how this relates to information about abortion. So they're basically they're answering the question, if a police officer were to show up at a doctor's office and say, hey, I want to know X, Y, Z, do doctors have to share it? What are the rules here? So let's go over a couple of things that HHS covered. So they said, first of all, because of HIPAA privacy laws, doctors cannot report a suspicion that a patient has induced an abortion unless state law compels them to report it. So they cannot say, I, you know, Mrs. Smith came in, I think she tried to induce an abortion. They cannot report Doctors cannot report that a patient informed them she is traveling out of state for an abortion. In other words, if Mrs. Smith says, you know what, I'm in Texas and I'm going to go to New York, the doctor cannot report that if a police officer comes knocking at the door. Also, they cannot hand over records of abortions. If the police officer says, I want a record of every abortion you've done here, a doctor cannot do that. Now, having said that, Jake, HIPAA is not 100 percent. These are three examples that they talked about. But HIPAA did, would not protect a patient 100 percent from having certain pieces of information revealed to law enforcement. Elizabeth, what if a court orders a doctor to turn over the health information of a specific patient? Right. That is a whole different scenario, Jake. So what lawyers say is, yeah, you got the doctor has to abide by that court order. HIPAA kind of goes away. The doctors have to do what the court order says, but only specifically, very specifically what the court order asks for. I've heard a lot of women expressing concern that data stored in personal devices and linked to things like apps that track a woman's menstrual cycle could be used against them. What does HHS have to say about that? Right. So, Jake, a lot of people get confused and think that HIPAA protects absolutely every piece of information about you. That's not true. So let's take a look at things that HIPAA doesn't protect. So, for example, in your Internet search history, if you say, where can I get an abortion? It is not going to protect that. That could be turned over to law enforcement or information that you voluntarily shared online. Let's say a Facebook post where you talked about some experience or, you know, trying to get an abortion. It's not going to protect your geographic location. Like, let's say you walked into an abortion clinic. It's not going to protect the fact that you were there. Also, if you enter a data into an app, like, for example, a period tracker for personal use, it is not going to protect that. So HHS has some tips for how to protect certain pieces of information. They say if you don't need to use the app, don't use it. There are other ways of keeping track of things. Also, you can turn off location services so that your phone's not tracking where you're going. And advertisers track you. So you can go in your settings to turn off allow apps to request to track or delete advertising ID, depending upon whether you have an Apple or an Android phone. You can turn those off. And there are other steps that HHS has, but they're very clear, Jake, that you can't erase your digital footprint. You can do things to limit it, but you're not going to erase it. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Thanks. Joining us now to discuss the Attorney General of Wisconsin, Josh Call. Attorney General Call, thanks for joining us. So you filed a lawsuit to stop an 1849 law in your state, um, which is a near complete abortion ban, 1849. Um, why are you saying that courts should declare that law unenforceable? Well, first, the decision that the Supreme Court issued last Friday has made women in Wisconsin less free, less equal, and less safe than they have been just last week. And uh, we are doing what we can to mitigate the harm from that decision and also to fight to restore reproductive freedom in Wisconsin. And one way we're doing that is through this lawsuit. Uh, the governor and I announced it just a few days ago. And we're arguing uh, two things. One, that 
laws that were passed after Roe v. Wade was uh, was issued, uh, by implication, repealed the 19th century abortion ban because they have provisions that are inconsistent with the old ban. For example, uh, there's an exception to protect the health of the mother under more recent uh, laws that were passed, and we were arguing it can't be both legal and illegal to perform an abortion to protect the health of the mother. Uh, and then we're also arguing that the old ban has gone into disuse, uh, both because it wasn't used that often prior to Roe and, and, of course, hasn't been used in the last 50 years. So you have said you're not going to enforce the law as the Attorney General of Wisconsin, but take a listen to what the District Attorney uh, of Sheboygan County, Wisconsin, had to say. If law enforcement forwards an investigation to us and there's a violation of law, we will prosecute it. Our job as prosecutors, in my opinion, is we're upholding the law. So that district attorney, Sheboygan County, says he, his job is to prosecute violations of the law, whatever the law is. How do you respond? Well, we clearly have a different view about our roles. You know, prosecutors have a lot of discretion. We make decisions day in and day out about how most effectively to use limited resources and it's my view that uh, enforcing this, this abortion ban is going to harm Wisconsinites, and that reason, is reason alone uh, not to enforce it. But on top of that, uh, we face serious crimes that we need to investigate and prosecute, homicides, sexual assaults, and drug trafficking. And to shift resources from those kinds of cases to enforcing a 19th century abortion ban, I think, is a serious misuse of resources. Well, what can you do, let's say that he prosecutes a woman for violating the 1849 law, in Sheboygan County. Is there anything you can do about it? Ultimately, it's up to each DA and each police chief and sheriff to decide how they want to use their resources. Uh, we have gone to court to challenge this ban, of course. And so if the court finds that the ban is, is not, in fact, in effect, then uh, that would stop anybody from bringing a prosecution under it. But if, if the court uh, upholds the ban uh, and, and finds that it is in effect, then, then DAs can enforce that law and and then we're going to need a legislative solution. And that's one of the things we're also pursuing here is calling on our legislators in Wisconsin to come into session, to take action, to protect the health and safety of women in Wisconsin. The Department of Health and Human Services uh, released these new guidelines about how private health information can be shared with law enforcement without the consent of patients, as you just heard Elizabeth Cohen describing. Uh, is this something you think women in Wisconsin have to worry about? I think it is, unfortunately, because we have this ban on the books and it criminalizes uh, the vast majority of abortions. And once it's become a crime, then it becomes a question of whether uh, those conversations are, are protected health information. And we've seen DAs and AGs uh, in some states abuse their authority. In Kansas, uh, under Phil Klein, for example, a few decades ago, we saw really aggressive use of subpoena power. And I fear that if we don't change our laws soon, we're going to see that kind of dragnet approach where uh, there's a serious invasion of people's uh, health privacy and medical privacy, uh, unless we draw the line now and we stand up and restore access to safe and legal abortion in states like Wisconsin and around the country. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. The Supreme Court just made it a lot harder for the Environmental Protection Agency to protect the environment. The White House Climate Advisor will join us live next. Earth Matters series, the U.S. Supreme Court today severely limited the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to fight global warming. The 6-3 decision, reflecting the court's split between conservatives and liberals, affects the agency's ability to police carbon emissions from existing power plants. Let's bring in White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy. She's a former EPA administrator. 
Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, first of all, what was the EPA trying to do and why did the court block it? Well, thanks, Jake. Uh, it wasn't at EPA's initiative that this went to the Supreme Court, and we're disappointed in the decision, as you may guess. But look, for decades, we've had special interests funded by the fossil fuel companies that are trying to turn our country back instead of move forward with the clean energy transition. So it is disappointing, and that decision did limit the ability of EPA to use one section of the Clean Air Act in a way they had used to tackle the climate crisis. But it did not prevent them from acting in a regulatory way. And this president is fully committed to moving forward to tackle the climate crisis. And he's using bold steps throughout the whole of government in order to get that done. And so we will see the transition to clean energy, regardless of the Supreme Court. But we're disappointed that they chose to choose those interests over the interests of the public in the United States of America and frankly across the world who worry about the challenge of climate change and should. So just to play devil's advocate for a second, wouldn't Chief sure. Justice Roberts just say, if you want the statutory authority to do this, go to Congress and get it. You're going by a law that was uh, long before climate change uh, was a major problem. Just go get the statutory authority from Congress. That's all you have to do. Well, the, the, the decision itself that Justice Roberts wrote doesn't take away the statutory authority for EPA to move forward to regulate greenhouse gases. It was a very limited decision, but it did send a signal. It sent, it sent a signal that the Supreme Court is interested continually in going backwards instead of forwards. Look, Jake, the private sector is all in on this transition to clean energy because it makes them money. And we're interested in it because it creates jobs. It lowers costs for families who are trying to struggle with the energy costs today. And we know we can get this done. And we're succeeding, which is why this decision actually happened. So this is a major defeat for the Biden administration's attempts to slash emissions at this moment when scientists are sounding the alarms about the accelerating pace of global warming. And we're seeing real-time effects in, in climate crises all over the, the, the world. Um, how bad is this problem and will this decision decidedly make it worse? No, I don't think it will. It took away one small authority we had and it sends some signals about what, what the Supreme Court might do in the future. But right now we have full authority to get and move forward and achieve the president's goals. Look, the private sector isn't sitting around twiddling its thumbs worried about one provision in the Clean Air Act. It's worried about moving forward to capture the clean energy market of today. In offshore wind, we see over $2 billion being invested since this president came on board. And in the transportation sector, when it comes to EVs, they're winning. We see over $160 billion of private sector investments. In solar, we see over $6 billion put on the table when the president acted boldly to make sure that we could move forward with domestic production. So we're not giving up we're actually going to double down. And we know that we have the legal authority, and frankly, we have the mandate of the people in the United States and across the world who want to address this challenge of climate change and do it in a way that makes positive improvements in our lives. This is about protecting public health. This is about advancing our interests of our families and our workers. We're going to keep moving forward, even though the Supreme Court would like to look backwards and hold us back. All right, White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
Thank you, Jake. Progressives were already mad at him, and now President Biden may have just angered more members of his own party. That's next. Turning back to our politics lead today, President Biden called for a change in Senate filibuster rules to allow legislation protecting abortion rights to pass with 51 votes instead of requiring 60. During a news conference at the NATO summit, Biden was asked about criticism from progressives who say he isn't doing or saying enough to protect abortion rights in the United States. Your views on abortion have evolved in your public life. Are you the best messenger to carry this forward when Democrats, many of them, many progressives, want you to do more? (laughs) Yeah, I am. I'm the president of the United States of America. That makes me the best messenger. I'm the only president they got. I'm the only president they got. Let's bring in former Obama advisor David Axelrod. Um, What do you make of that answer? I'm the only president these progressives have. Yeah, look, I have some sympathy for him because uh, there are so many issues like this where there is a limit to what he can do at the moment. You know, people say, well, let's do it with a filibuster. And he, of course, endorsed that today. But he doesn't have, Jake, you know this, he doesn't have 50 votes uh, to do away with the filibuster. And he doesn't really have a magic wand that can create that or make 48 votes the requirement to do to change the rule. And so, you know, but but there is this uh, there is a strong passion about this issue out there and people want him to do something to. uh, And so, you know, (laughs) there's a frustration, I'm sure, uh, on his part. It it was not the best answer. I I will give you that. But um, but I also, you know, I I feel his pain because I I know what it's like to be sitting in these situations and being uh, pummeled by elements of your own. Uh, of your own community. Today, in addition to, to criticizing the court's decision to get rid of Roe v. Wade, President Biden called for a change in the, in the Senate rules, as you know, uh, the filibuster rules. Um, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And it also seems to me, just as an observer, somebody who's been around enough time to see the House and Senate flip control from Democrat to Republican, um, yeah. short-sighted. I mean, you could change the rules and, and pass a codification of Roe v. Wade, although there aren't enough Democratic senators to do that. But then what happens when Republicans take the Senate, the Senate and, and ban abortion using the same filibuster-free rules? Right. And I, I think that that has generally been his concern. Um, you're absolutely right. There aren't the votes now to change the filibuster. And uh, very likely you're going to have a Republican House uh, come, uh, unless something unforeseen happens. That seems to be the direction we're headed. Could have a a Republican Senate as well. Uh, So, you know, uh, there, but this, I will say this, this is a motivator, this will be a motivator, I suspect, for voters out there uh, to vote for Democrats who are pro-choice votes in the House and the Senate last, uh, in the fall. And maybe that's uh, maybe that's what he was aiming for. More than anything, Jake, I think he wanted to show that he was moving forward, that he was taking affirmative steps, that he was ready to fight. And that's what you hear uh, quite a bit. Why will he fight for these uh, these initiatives? But he's also setting up a test. And, uh, you know, at some point, if the rule hasn't changed, if they haven't passed this legislation, it's going to be one more thing where people say, gee, he just couldn't get it done. Well, he's not going to be able to get it done. Manchin and Cinema aren't going to do it. And those are just the two taking it on the chin for it. There are lots of Democratic senators very concerned 
less publicly so, about changing the filibuster right. rules for, for the reason I explained. Yes, yes. So and, and Manchin and Cinema provided cover for them. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is the this is the, the lot that Biden finds himself in. There is this sense that things are kind of out of control and he's not in command. And this uh, and this lends, uh, you know, lends to that, uh, you know, inflation is no one president could control inflation. But it is a, a you know, it's a gale force wind right now. It's affecting politics very hard to come. You know, to, you, you heard him on gas prices today talks about the gas tax holiday, but he's not going to get the gas tax holiday. And there are a lot of Americans who are skeptical about whether that would uh, that would help. Uh, so, there, you know, this is a very, very freighted, uh, fraught environment for him right now. In fact, just because I was just reading Barack Obama's latest memoir, uh, President Obama credits opposing the gas tax holiday in 2007, yeah, yeah, 2008. With the, he says, and because McCain and Hillary Clinton were in favor of it, in 2008. Yes. And, and his opposition, he thinks, is the reason that he beat her in North Carolina and, and tied with her in Indiana and became the Democratic nominee. Yeah. And, you know, he did on his own. He, there wasn't a big consultation. He got asked about it. And he said, hey, we tried that in the legislature in 2000 and none of the money got to consumers. It was kind of a gimmick, a fig leaf for politicians. And what we really need to do is change our en our energy mix. And he got a lot of credit from voters for telling the truth about that. And a lot of people in Washington thought he was crazy to do it. But I think it did it did contribute to his victory in 2008. Now, gas is, gas prices then were at the quaint low price of four dollars, Jake, not five. So but I, I suspect there's a a fair amount of skepticism about it today as well. Earlier, we referred to a, a new poll showing that 85% of the American people think the United States is heading in the wrong direction. That, frankly, points to disaster for Democrats in November. Yeah, look, uh, there are a lot of, you know, if you were looking at the chart, you'd say the vitals are not good. The president's approval ratings at 38%. The, his economic ratings are low. Consumer confidence is down. The number that you uh, mentioned. The one thing that I don't know is how this uh, <clears throat> ruling by the Supreme Court last week is going to affect things. I've heard from people all over the country who've been doing focus groups and polling this week, and it really does seem to have galvanized people, and not just about this issue, but concerns about Republicans uh, and extremism. And, uh, you know, if I were a Republican strategist, I'd be a little bit worried about that right now. Uh, I, I don't think we fully understand what the political impact is going to be. Uh, but that is one countervailing fact. But on the basic numbers, you're absolutely right. And I think everybody recognizes that this uh, at current course and speed, this could be a very painful fall for Democrats. Yeah, I remember 2010, just watching the red <laughs> wave, the red wave, cover, you know, go all the way, just wiping out all your Democratic House allies as it that, that election night. David Axelrod. Yeah, I, I still, have, still have the bruises, my friend. <laughs> Good to see you. Thanks so much, David Axelrod. Good to see you. Uh, a crime that pushed the fight for civil rights into the national spotlight. Now a discovery decades later could finally lead to some modicum of justice over the lynching of Emmett Till. Stay with us. For the buried lead now, that's what we call stories that we think deserve more attention. Let's go to Oklahoma. Richard Glossop was convicted of murder and the death of his boss in 1997. Prosecutors say Glossop was the mastermind behind a murder-for-hire plot, but he has maintained his innocence for more than 20 years, and he's been on death row that time. 
There are a lot of people in Oklahoma, Democrats and Republicans, who believe Glossop, and they're trying to get him off death row. CNN's Bryn Gingras went to Oklahoma for us to take a look at the effort to save his life. Oklahoma death row inmate Richard Glossop has eaten his last meal three times, and each time... The governor issued a stay. He's been spared execution over various legal challenges, but a fourth execution date could be set for as soon as September. Somebody needs to fight for Richard. Kevin McDougal, a Republican state representative and capital punishment supporter, is going against party lines, trying to save Glossop's life. I will fight to end the death penalty in Oklahoma if they put Richard to death. Glossop, a former hotel manager, now 59 years old, has spent 25 years in prison, twice convicted of concocting a murder-for-hire plan in the killing of his boss, Barry Van Treese, in 1997. Prosecutors say it was another hotel employee who physically killed Van Treese. That man received a life sentence in exchange for his testimony pointing the finger at Glossop. I want people to know that I didn't kill this man. I didn't participate. I didn't plan. Don Knight, his attorney, took on the case in 2015 after Glossop had exhausted all chances for an appeal, including one that made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. I recognized pretty quickly that there were real problems with this case. And it appeared to me quite possibly that Oklahoma was about to execute an innocent man. The state of Oklahoma continues to stand by the conviction. Friday, Knight will file a petition with the State Court of Appeals, asking for a hearing based on new findings. It's a Hail Mary, one that comes after the release of an independent investigation bringing to light evidence favoring Glossop's innocence. They can say, ignore this thing and let's set an execution date for this man. Or they can say, you know, boy, there's there's something here. The more than 300-page report done by international law firm Reed Smith points to an inadequate police investigation and states, quote, Our conclusion is that no reasonable juror hearing the complete record would have convicted Richard Glossop of first-degree murder. The report found prosecutors intentionally destroyed evidence and uncovered evidence that never went before a jury, calling it, quote, a complete breakdown in our criminal justice system. The original lead prosecutor did not respond to CNN's request for comment. Investigators say the attorney general's office did not respond to requests for access to records and evidence. They talked to people who have never been talked to before. They found paperwork that had never been found before. The report was commissioned by a bipartisan group of 34 state lawmakers, including 28 Republicans, led by McDougal. If we put an innocent man to death, that means we can do it again in the future. And so why have the death penalty? Oklahoma is second in the country behind Texas for carrying out the most executions. Since his involvement with the Glossop case, McDougal has filed three bills in the state house to reform capital punishment. None have moved forward. But there's hope Glossop's case and the report will create change. When you're a Republican standing up for somebody that that needs to be uh, exonerated, uh, it's difficult because some may call you soft on crime. Uh, you may lose your next election based off of it. Uh, but to me, I always go back to this is this is a man's life. 
And the AG's office isn't commenting about this report to us, and we didn't get a call back from the current district attorney's office. But listen, I talked to Knight earlier today, right after he actually was visiting Glossop in prison. He said Glossop got that report this past Tuesday. He read it over, and he said, quite frankly, his reaction, he's angry, Jake, and he's scared. There's a lot in those 350 pages that he never even knew about, and he's worried, really, no one's going to pay attention now. Of course, we've seen so much support here, but the next steps, Knight is going to file this paperwork tomorrow, and the media goal is to really just stop the state from setting a new execution date and then ultimately, of course, exonerate Glossop. We'll stay on top of this, Jake. All right, Bryn Gingrass, great reporting. Thank you so much. It has been nearly 70 years since Emmett Till's murder spurred much of the civil rights movement. Why his family says now they're finally hopeful that some justice may be served. Stay with us. In our national lead, the family of Emmett Till is calling for the white woman who accused the black teen of making aggressive advances to be arrested. This after an unserved 1955 arrest warrant charging Carolyn Bryant Donham and two others of kidnapping Emmett Till was found nearly 70 years later in a Mississippi courthouse basement. Emmett Till was just 14 when he was kidnapped, tortured, and brutally slaughtered by two white men following Donham's accusations, which in 2008, we should note, she allegedly recanted in an interview for a book that was published nine years later. Donham later told the FBI that she never recanted her testimony. She's in her 80s. She is alive and well. Let's bring in CNN's Ryan Young now. Ryan, how was this arrest warrant discovered, and what's the reaction from Emma Till's family? Well, as you can imagine, Jake, this has been fascinating in terms of the details of this story, but for this family... They've never given up hope. They've never stopped fighting over 70 years. It was actually their own family foundation that was in that basement. And they said they found a dusty, dank box that they opened up. And there was the warrant. It was signed. It was ready to go. Three names appeared on it. And, of course, now they want that warrant served. And you talked about the fact that she recanted that admission several years later. But think about the two men who were involved in this case who were tried and also found not guilty. They told a magazine years later that they actually did the crime. And if it wasn't for Jet Magazine putting out those photos years ago of Emmett Till's face, badly beaten, tortured before he was murdered, a 14-year-old, the whole country sort of changed when you think about the civil rights movement and how people started stepping into the streets because they thought this was a line that should have been never crossed. And then put the fact that now, 70 years later, this family is still fighting for justice. They want to see something happen. They want to see the warrant serve. But as we've been talking to law experts throughout the day, they feel there should be some hurdles that could come along with that because obviously the woman now lives in North Carolina, not in Mississippi. So this conversation is not over, Jake. But if you think about it, this family has not given up. So much time has passed, but those images seared into the brains of a lot of Americans. Jake? Can Donham be arrested? Yeah, and that is the big question. I actually talked to a lawyer just before coming on set. He says, look, the warrant still may be good in Mississippi, but because she lives in North Carolina and she was never served it or never ran from it, there might be some uh, talk about whether or not she could be moved from one state to the next. So this all will have to get played out in the legal eyes. But so far, most lawyers believe that there'll be some more hurdles when it comes to whether or not they can move her or not, especially at this point. All right, Ryan Young, thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the Lead CNN. We actually read them. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you know what you can do? You can listen to the Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.